So it is my joy to introduce uh, Boss Von Ray to you this morning. Boss uh, and his wife Kat have been here for close to 10 years. They have six kids who um, are wonderfully hard to miss here at the church. They're great. Uh, we love them dearly. Boss and Kat have hosted a care group. He's been a care group leader, uh, faithful, hospitable family for many years. They've overseen the junior high ministry for a number of years also. And just precious to my own heart is the fact that every time I end up meeting and conversing with Boss, I am spurred on. I see an example, and I'm encouraged in my faith. And so I'm excited for you to hear from him, most excited for you to hear God's word um, as presented by him, and I know that we'll all be spurred on in that. So please welcome Boss Von Ray with me. All right, good morning. There's a first for everything, I guess. Standing in this pulpit is one for me. I always see people take this thing down, but it looks like it's screwed down. Maybe I should leave it. All right, we're going to continue the summer in the Psalms, the Jewish hymn book. So I'd ask you to turn to Psalm 34. For those of you that were in the first service, I think you already were in Psalm 39. So just go to the left a little bit and you'll be right there where we're going to be today. So the Psalms are very helpful for us as believers in teaching us to get our heart and mind in the right place, especially when we experience deep emotions. So I want to tell you a little bit about my own uh, journey with the Psalms. Uh, my lowest point in my life was probably February of 2015. So I'd lost my mom when she was 58 years old back in 2008 to cancer, and then in 2015, I lost my father at age 62 to a sudden cardiac arrest while he was uh, cycling back in the Netherlands where I grew up. So at age 36, I'd already buried both my parents and I felt lost. My dad was my mentor. Uh, he was my advisor, my counselor, my friend, and my cycling partner. Uh, we even did three century bike rides back in uh, Palm Springs, California, where I used to live. And growing up, we a lot of cycling all throughout Europe, and um, we were sometimes going up a steep hill and out of breath, so not much talking happened, but sometimes we just rode next to each other and uh, just had a lot of great conversations, so I cherish those times. He helped me to think through relationships, parenting, politics, theology, and he also led me to the Lord when I was 12 years old in my own living room. So at this time, I felt aimless. Lost, insecure, unsure, and I felt deep sadness. Some of you here may know the feeling where actually your heart hurts, like you feel this aching in your chest. Um, that's how I felt back then. I remember being sadder than ever and, and not even having any more tears to cry at that point. So the Psalms were a balm to my soul during this time. And they helped me um, reorder my thinking, and they comforted me. So here's a few verses that really got a hold of me and my heart and were very helpful and instructive during this time. So Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect and restores the soul. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Even though I walk through the, the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, 
for you are with me. Psalm 32, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Psalm 42, as a deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 90, so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And this one is on the gravestone of my parents. Psalm 91, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. A couple more. Psalm 100, for the Lord is good, his loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 121, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 130, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Psalm 136, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And then finally, Psalm 150, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. So Psalm 34 is very personal to me as it reflects much of what I've learned and what I now tell others all the time, namely that no matter what happens in life, God is our refuge and only he offers ultimate peace. Isaiah 26 verse 3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, for he trusts in you. So this gets us to Psalm 34. It's uh, an acrostic, meaning that each sentence starts with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, with the exception of wow, which is the sixth letter. It's just like Psalm 25. Got a very simple outline for those of you that grabbed one on the way in. Uh, two ways in which David illustrates that God is the only refuge amid the trials of life. First, a personal testimony in verses 1 through 10. It's actually a hymn. Some of you, as we go through it, may uh, remember us hearing a song about Psalm 34. Two, prophetic teaching, a sermon. So it's actually kind of like a mini church service, a hymn and a sermon. So we'll start with the hymn. Oh, there's a little button that says push. Maybe I could try that. Anyway, sorry. I don't. Um, personal testimony. Verses 1, 2, and 3. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So in verse 1, David starts by saying that he will bless the Lord at all times. 
and will give praise to him continually. He simply won't stop talking about the goodness of God. So in Matthew 12, 34, the Lord Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that is true of David here as well. It's easy to see how David was so relieved that God rescued him from a very perilous situation in which he easily could have lost his life. I'm going to turn real quick to 1 Samuel 21 to provide a little bit of context for this psalm. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read it for you. 1 Samuel 21 verse 10 says, Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman? Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act a madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Notice in verse 12 there how fearful David was of this king Achish. That is going to come back through the psalm as we go through it. So when he wrote this, he most likely was in a cave of Adullam, contemplating God's grace in delivering him from a very dangerous situation. Then he wrote this psalm. I think a little bit what's significant about that is that he took time in that moment to remember God's deliverance and a turn to praise. I feel like for us sometimes life moves so quickly that we don't stop often enough to give God proper praise for what he's done in our lives. While he was there, he most likely also wrote Psalm 56. So a little side note, uh, maybe in the little top portion of your Bible, it will say, um, say something a little bit different than Achish. It says, uh, the psalm calls the ruler Abimelech, but in 1 Samuel 21, his real name is Achish. Most likely, one was his actual name, and the other was a title, more like Pharaoh or Caesar along those lines. Now, David is standing before the ruler of the Philistines in a city called Gath. Remember, there was another famous former citizen of this town or city, Goliath hailed from Gath. And David was holding the unmistakable, probably giant sword of Goliath as he was standing in front of this king. So a little bit of school since it's Sunday school, right? Goliath was six cubits and a span tall by the measurements provided in 1 Samuel 17, 4 through 7. So a cubit, for those of you that no Hebrew measurements, is from right here to right there. In my case, about 20 inches. And a span is from the pinky 
to the tip of the thumb, in my case, about nine inches. So that gives us a, a man of about 10 foot nine. That's pretty tall, but you know, I might be slightly larger than the average person. There's smaller people if we take, for example, I mean, Aaron already brought it up, say Pastor Rick. His measurements would be slightly different, right? So um, you end up with like nine foot three. So you kind of split the difference. You end up with a guy that's about nine six to maybe even 10 feet tall. So the sword that he had with him was probably much bigger than any typical sword out there. And it was actually the sword that decapitated Goliath. So now he's standing before the king of the town. And this was the moment the Philistines could have taken their revenge. Finally, the Jewish hero for the life of their own local hero, who I'm sure everybody knew because he was hard to miss. But they didn't, which is dumbfounding when you think of it. The king simply said, behold, you see the man is behaving like a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madman that you have brought this one to act a madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? There was a particular fear in those days that maybe that madness that hit David was contagious. And so he wanted that as far away from him as possible. So David got away. Miraculously. In verse 2, we see that David does not boast in his own might, but in God. And he says, the humble will hear it and rejoice. Everyone who has experienced God's saving power out of a seemingly desperate situation rejoices with David in God. And we, as believers, have much to rejoice in because all of us, at one point, desperately cried out to God for salvation. And the Lord answered, as he always does. David realized, as he reflected on what happened, that this was nothing short of a miracle. And it caused him to say with full confidence in verse 3, Magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Should sound pretty familiar. It's part of our mission statement. I'm not going to make you recite it right now. Always kind of wanted to do that though, but um, we can't make God any greater than he already is, right? But we can spread a passion for his glory. And I think that's really what David had in mind right here. Then he goes on and says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he rescues them. The Bible verse that comes to mind here is Matthew eleven twenty eight. It says, And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can kill both body and soul in hell. David was very much afraid of King Achish, but all those fears were taken away. So once David sought the Lord and cried out, in verse 4, 
he found out that God heard him and answered him. So in Isaiah 55, verse 6, we read, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And David did exactly that. And this invitation stands for anyone here as well who has not yet called upon the Lord for salvation. So I've had the pleasure of attending uh, a few weddings recently here at uh, MRBC. I see one couple right there. I always look at the groom's face when he stands up front here with the pastor as his bride has come around the back holding her father's arm. The radiance of the young man's face, the groom, says it all. He is overjoyed and overwhelmed. I remember that own feeling just over 19 years ago when I got married myself. I may have shed a tear or two. Um, if you could bottle up that emotion, that mixture of joy and delight, you get the idea of what David is talking about here in verse 5 to a certain extent. The people who trust in God are overwhelmed and radiant at the sight of their God saving them and providing for them. They are never ashamed. Meaning, the trust they have placed in the Lord will never turn out to be a disappointment. So then here in verse 6, who is this poor man? It's David himself when he was in distress before the king of Gath. The idea of poor here is someone who's needy or in trouble, someone who is helpless. The Lord heard him and saved him. This is why anyone who calls on the Lord in absolute despair will never be ashamed. Perhaps someone in here right now this morning is at the point of despair, not seeing a way out. I know we all put our brave faces on, come to church, look the part, but inside, somebody may be here that is down, really down, maybe exhausted from trying. What does David tell us? Cry out to God and find that he is ready to save. I promise. Don't lean on your own prideful strength, but trust in his infinite power. One thing we do at home sometimes, just for fun, gives you a little picture of how we do things at the Von Ray household. We do a trust fall. I don't know if you ever heard of that. Where I stand and the kid, typically Vivian, looks forward, cannot look over her shoulder, has to put her arms out, and then just fall back and trust that I will catch her. And at the very last second, sometimes she like puts her foot back just because she's not quite sure if I'm going to be there. I've not dropped her yet, nor I've dropped any of my other kids. I even tried it with Kat only one time. Um, <laughs> did catch her too. Um, that's a little bit of what we're talking about here. Do we really believe he will answer? Do we really believe he will be there in that moment? The title, Angel of the Lord, 
in verse 7 is often used for God himself. In uh, the Old Testament, you find it 65 times. Actually, in the story of Hagar, if you may remember in Genesis 16, it was used four times, and it was speaking of God himself when she had fled from Sarai and was in the wilderness. The idea here of the angel of the Lord encamping around his people is that he completely protects. There's no weak spot. It's a complete protection. And he encloses those who fear him. David is absolutely sure that placing his trust in God will never turn out in disillusionment or shame. God is not fickle and he does not change. James 1.17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He can be trusted at all times. In Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, many of you know this, it says, Trust the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Next, verses 8 through 10. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you as saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. So that's the, the culmination, the crescendo. I don't know if Aaron is here. I'm using the terminology right here. I'm not a music guy, but it's, it's kind of like the, the peak of, of the hymn. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We're talking about a full experience, all your senses. The question I'd like to ask anybody here is if you really have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, have you come to the point in your life that you're so convinced of his character and faithfulness that nothing can shake you? Or do you still doubt his goodness when bad things happen? Do you still question his character if things don't go as you had expected? You would not come out and say it like that, but what is your first response if something unpleasant, disappointing, unexpected, or tragic happens? Do you often worry about things that are out of your control? Do you quickly become anxious and have no peace? It's not enough to just mentally agree that God is good. You have to believe it. You have to experience it. You have to taste and see it and know it. And once that truth rules your heart, it'll inform your feelings and emotions. Wouldn't it be great if our first response to any negative stimulus would be, I know God is good. I know he is sovereign. And whatever happens here is fully under his control and express command. And it's for my good and his glory. What if we are quick to turn to Romans 8.28 or even memorize that and believe it with all our heart that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
This is the process we need to walk through when anything happens in life that we don't understand, but that's highly unpleasant, not according to our expectations. Pastor Rick often says it, what do you feel, what do you think, what do you know? And then once you've achieved this knowledge that we just talked about, then that should affect your thinking and your feelings. The Apostle Peter actually uh, quotes this psalm several times. He, he loved this psalm from what I could tell. He says in 1 Peter 2, 1, 2, and 3, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. That last phrase reminds the reader of the words here from Psalm 34. Derek Kidner, one of the commentators, um, I did a little bit of reading in, in that. Uh, he says that the wording here suggests that the tasting should be more than a casual sampling. It's not a grazing. It's a full engagement. In verse 9, David makes a promise that those who fear God will not be in want. In verse 4, David said, God delivered him from all his fear of man. And in verse 7, he said that those who fear God will be protected. We must replace our fear of man with the fear of God. Fear of man makes us anxious and desperate. But the fear of God brings peace. Is that interesting? Fear of God leads to righteous living and peace with him, whereas fear of man leads to unrighteousness and lack of peace. David uses the contrast of young lions who suffer hunger with those who trust in God, who never lack any good thing, in verse 10. The picture is of cubs that are weaned at this point, but are not mature enough to hunt for themselves and who rely on the lionesses to kill prey so they can come and eat. In the meantime, they're hungry. In, um, in the wild, uh, lionesses hunt about every two to three days um, and are successful about 30% of the time. And so in the meantime, the Young lions, they're hungry all the time, never satisfied. Now, David would have known about this because he was a shepherd and dealt with wild animals like bears and lions. People who seek the Lord will not be in want of any good thing. This is why we need to heed the words of our Lord from Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Psalm 37, 4, David says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Matthew 7, 11, the Lord says, If you then, being evil, speaking to fathers, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Now lastly, in Romans 8, 32, Paul reminds the church of this. He 
who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So that concludes the hymn. That concludes the first portion of this psalm. Now we're going to go into prophetic teaching. So the the sermon component of what David is teaching us here in Psalm 34. Verse 11. Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. In verse 11, David tells the people to pay close attention to what they should do based on his testimony, his experience. He's wise because of what God has taught him. And now he wants to apply this wisdom and teach others. Notice, there's one thing he's concerned with, and that is to teach the people the fear of the Lord. That's the key theme here. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, as Proverbs 9 verse 10 tells us. In the next verses, David illustrates what a person who fears the Lord looks like. Who doesn't want to live a rewarding and full life. Who does not want to grow old and enjoy the good things the Lord provides. Verse 12 is really a rhetorical question. Everybody wants that. The way to achieve this fulfilling life is by keeping your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Verse 13 as well as to depart from evil and do good, along with seeking peace and pursuing it in verse 14. Many of these themes can be found in Romans 12, where we are called to live at peace with each other as far as it depends on us, in Romans 12, 18, as well as many other commands Paul gives to church. Peter explains in 1 Peter 2, 1, 2, and 3, just read those earlier, that believers who have tasted the goodness of God put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. He actually quotes this section as well in 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12. The life of a believer who trusts in God and who fears the Lord looks like this because that is evidence that one truly fears and loves the Lord. It is the natural outflow of a changed life. The putting on of the new life in Christ that Pastor Rick will be teaching on, Lord willing, next week from Ephesians 4, 24. Then in 15 through 18, we read, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The high priestly blessing from Numbers 6, 24 to 26 reads as follows. The Lord bless you and keep you. 
The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Blessing from God, blessings from God are inherently tied to him turning his face or his eyes towards you. In contrast, in verse 16, we see that God is closed off to evildoers and will erase them. He'll literally wipe them away as if they never existed. There's no recollection of them, like a pencil mark on a piece of paper that gets erased, or something on a, on a, on a whiteboard with a dry erase marker that is just completely taken away. Next, in verse 17, David again reminds the people that if they fear God and honor him and obey him, he'll hear them and deliver them out of all their troubles and they'll be saved. What kind of cry are we talking about here in verse 17? What does it mean to be brokenhearted, verse 18a? What does it mean to be crushed in spirit in 18b? These are the moments when we think we're stuck and cannot see a way out. The effects of sin are all around us and it weighs on us. Just remember that the Lord is near and a very present help in time of need, from Psalm 46.1. Rather than putting confidence in ourselves, we must put confidence in him. Think of the Beatitudes where the Lord Jesus said, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Matthew 5, 3 through 7. We are not to hope in earthly circumstances. We are only to hope in God. We must turn to the Lord and wait for him to act and bring comfort and salvation. And in the middle of all of that, we know that God uses trials in our lives to draw us closer to him. Psalm 25, verse 3 says, Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be shamed. Verse 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So verse 19 does away with the health and wealth gospel, which is really a false gospel. We're promised in this life that there will be difficulty and hardship, which should lead to sanctification and a longing for heaven. In 2 Timothy 3.12, we read that all those who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. This will take different forms, but opposition to the gospel should be expected. We know God will ultimately deliver us out of them all. Now, verse 20 is interesting. A lot of ink was spilled on just that verse which we won't have time for all of that this morning. But it was true of David that none of his bones were broken in the ordeal with Achish. 
However, there have been many righteous martyrs who have had most of their bones broken during times of persecution. So really this is hyperbole to a certain extent, but it also points to the only true righteous man who ever lived, the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man. He is the perfect Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. From John 1.29, he is the ultimate Passover Lamb. And we see the same Lamb gloriously in heaven in Revelation 5 as the only one worthy to open the book of life. This language is meant to illustrate God's complete care. Psalm 7, verse 15 through 16, um, David again says this about the unrepentant, wicked man. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into it himself, the hole that he has made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own pate, which is the crown of his head. This is really the picture in verse 21 um, of evil slaying the wicked. What they seek to do to others ends up happening to them. If you remember the story of, of Haman in the book of Esther, right? He built the gallows and he wanted to hang Mordecai on there, Esther's righteous, God-fearing uncle, but he ended up being hung on it himself, Esther 7 verse 10. God makes the viper poison itself. And then in verse 22, there's a beautiful picture of the gospel. The Lord redeems or purchases the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will suffer for their guilt. Make no mistake, there's guilt. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. However, we may know that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1, because he has redeemed us with his blood. Ephesians 1.7 and 8 say, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our, our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. You see that, that abundance that we're talking about here? That is our God. So in summary, David's experience in enemy territory, that was terrifying, led to him fearing the Lord and he found salvation in him alone. This caused him to then teach others about this proper fear as well. And that is very instructive even for us right now. This psalm has both a hymn that we ought to sing ourselves often, as that's true of our lives, and also a sermon that we should teach to others. And they're both beautifully connected. So in terms of what do we do with all this? I've already tried to put a little bit of application throughout the teaching, but there's a few things I want to sum up with. My question is, is God's praise continually on your lips? And I'm not just talking about singing here in church on Sunday morning. I'm talking about throughout the course of the week. Are we so overjoyed about what he has done for us that we just overflow with gratitude to him? 
As believers, we should be the most joyful and grateful people in existence. Two, do we trust the Lord, really? I already read you Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, but I want to now add two more verses. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. We don't often quote those last two verses. But that's what David is talking about right here. God is near the righteous and protects who belong to him. God takes care of his own and everybody is safe in his mighty hand. Remember, 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. We must replace our fear of man with a fear of God. Are you anxious? Are you worried all the time about anything? We must taste and see that the Lord is good and does good, as Psalm 119.68 tells us. And do we really believe that? Go to the Lord in prayer all the time. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. See verse 15, it says, His ears are open to our cry. Not one word of prayer goes unheard. We think too little of our God. Do you make time throughout the course of the day to reorient your heart and cling to the truth that God is sovereign and good? I would encourage you to do that. It will make a huge difference in how you see life. So in closing, in the death of my father, I was able to see the depth of the goodness of God. With the psalmist, I've concluded that I need nothing else besides God. The hardest thing that ever happened in my life has turned out to be the greatest sanctifying experience ever. And that's why I can say that I have tasted and seen, fully experienced, that the Lord is good. I believe now that I'm a little further removed from it, that he does indeed work all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I pray the same will be true of you. I promise you, you will not be disappointed when you turn to him and cling to him in the middle of the storms of life. Let's pray. Father, what a blessing it is to have the Psalms to give us words sometimes when we don't have our own, to speak to you, to express our feelings and our thoughts, to reorient us to proper faith and trust in your goodness. Help us to go to you early and often so we can be like the blessed man from Psalm 1 who meditates on your law day and night 
Thank you for this time. I pray that you would do a work in our midst, that you would encourage us, sanctify us completely. In Jesus' name, amen.